welcome to another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with your hosts, Lewis and Clark. This week we are absolutely delighted to welcome a special guest onto the show as we expand the nature of our content. At the end of the day, we are not called A Wee Bit of Everything for nothing. So, what's coming up today, Mr Burrow? Well, Mr Cleland, this week on the podcast, we are delighted to welcome Emma Drury onto the show. Emma graduated from the University of Wales College in Cardiff with a Bachelor of Science Honours degree in Optometry. This was closely followed by a pre-registration working year at Newcastle Royal Infirmary Eye Department. She worked in Edinburgh, Glasgow and Stirling for independent and group opticians for over 10 years. Whilst working, she gained a diploma in sports vision in 2004 and also began her training with the British Association of Behavioural Optometrists. In 2007, Emma opened her own optometrist practice in the Bridge of Allen to help her develop her specialist skills in sport and children's vision, alongside providing high-quality family eye care. We are both really looking forward to this one. Therefore, I think it's about time we get Emma onto the show. Right, Emma, welcome to A Wee Bit of Everything. Thanks for, for joining the show tonight. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good. Um, well, thanks again, as I said, for uh, joining and sharing your experience of working with children and young people using the behavioural optometry approach. Um, before we kind of get into that side of it, would you be able to tell us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date? Yeah, so... Um... Basically, I graduated from Cardiff University, UWCC, in 1995, so a while ago. Um, I then did my pre-registration year in Newcastle Royal Infirmary, so in the eye department there, which is where I first had experience of paediatric optometry. So there was some specialist stuff going on there with cerebral palsy, special needs, contact lenses. And from then, I basically came back up to Scotland because I got married to a Scotsman. And... Uh, worked in a, quite a number of multiples and independents and basically decided what sort of optometry I was interested in, which was primarily um, learning disabilities, um, sports vision, um, developmental disorders, and so just fine-tuning what I was really interested in. And so uh, in 2004, I did a sports vision diploma and that brought me towards behavioural optometry because in sports vision they use a lot of vision therapy and sports vision is basically optimising athletes vision uh, even though you might think they have perfect visual systems they actually don't and some of them have never even had their eyes tested so from there on in I started studying behavioural optometry and that's taken me a few years because it's quite a lot of information and you, there's not that many courses on it in the UK most of them are abroad um, so then in 2007, I opened my own optometry practice in Bridge of Allen so that I could specialise a wee bit more in the behavioural optometry as I was then accredited to the society and became part of their education committee. And then actually this year, I opened a private clinic that specialises purely in behavioural optometry. So I opened that in February and then promptly had to shut it again in yeah. April. <laughs> So that just opened up again, but that is basically primarily receiving referrals from teachers, schools, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, developmentalists like Andy Diel, um, to look at 
visual processing in adults and children with dyslexia, coordination difficulties, autism, Asperger's, loss of dysgraphia, uh, brain trauma, and also is allowing me to specialize in something called syntonics and prison therapy. So it just gives me more space to do that. So just taking the specialisms up a little level. So there's where I'm at just now. That sounds like you've got extensive experience then across the board over the past uh, couple of decades or so. So from my reading online, it sounds yeah, don't like... don't rub it in. What's that, sorry? Don't rub it in. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> that sounds awful. Just trying to compliment you there. With all experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, from my, my reading online, Emma, it sounds as if kind of your road into behavioural optometry started training with your training in sports vision in two thousand four, um, and then thereafter yes. looking at optimising vision in athletes. I suppose could I ask um, yes. what mo what motivated you to go down this road? So, um, I was working in Bridge of Allen at the time, which is just up the road from the University of Sport. And yep. um, well, sports vision is basically using vision therapy techniques and other techniques that work with your hand-eye coordination and your, your vision, but also your development. And I was actually coming across athletes who were working there, like training, 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 but just not getting to where they wanted to be and they couldn't understand it. And they were maybe struggling with a bit of double vision or a bit of a blur or just being exhausted. Um, so, for example, I had some really interesting fences. Um, I had a couple of footballers who were always getting injured um, and always injured on the same side of their body. And so basically I discovered this sports vision course, which I think was one of the first ones actually in the UK. And it basically went through some of the techniques that are very similar to optimizing vision and learning. So sport is, if you like, maximizing potential in sports people, but it's using the same similar techniques that you'd use to optimize vision when you're trying to learn something, basically. So in that same year, I discovered BABO, which is a behavioral society, and that they do quite a number of courses for optometrists. So you have to be a qualified optometrist to do it. But as I say, the, it's not that common in Scotland. There's only about three of us, I think, practicing at the moment because the, the actual um, training is quite long-winded. So it's basically taken me quite a few years to get to this level of mm. training but um, we have speakers from all over the world coming to the, the conferences so it's really exciting and it's new it's really new so that's mm. basically what you're trying to do in anybody is maximize their visual potential no matter what it is and don't be surprised if you find sports people who've never had an eye test so is, is there like a lot of like a lot of like I don't know how I'm trying to word this like consequences or repercussions of not like you say you can have perfect vision but not perfect visual processing or whatever is there like is there a lot of consequences i don't know how i'm trying to word this like is there a lot yeah. of side effects that can happen as like you said like the player kept getting injured and stuff yeah. is that as a result of the visual processing or well visual like, processing is your optimal visual skill so when you go for a normal eye test they're looking at your standard of vision so they want you to see 2020 on the chart. That's really what a routine yeah. eye test does. It checks for pathology and it checks to try and get you as near that 2020 as you possibly can. When you're an athlete or in school or developing or learning any skills, 
you have to have a really good integrated system. So in order to have a really good visual processing system, that's vision should be, you shouldn't really use any energy for your vision. It should be spontaneous mm -hmm. and easy and accurate and efficient. But what you'll find is if your system as a whole, so your development or your uh, gross motor foundation is poor, you will find fine motor, fine motor processes difficult. So mm -hmm. your fine motor processes or your hand grip, your yeah. visual processing, your audio processing. But if you looked at it from a sports person point of view, it could be their posture. It could yeah. be they have a head tilt. It could be they have a muscle weakness there that they're not aware of that suddenly changes throughout the performance. So they might have, you know, perfect system at the beginning of their performance, but it wanes as they get tireder. Uh -huh. um, so as you say, what that can do if you're a rugby player or a football player is you can suddenly um, almost find that your visual field is shrinking during a performance. So you might find you're not seeing as well peripherally because uh -huh. you're tired or you might find that you might have a slight squint that gets worse as you get tired. So it means that you're not as accurate on the ball. Um, you can find that, you know, when you're trying to kick the ball, like trying to score a goal or something, you're not as accurate later on in the performance. Um, you know, a lot of these things can be visually related yeah. and you can find that, um, just say, for example, you're a very dominant, a very right dominant footballer or a very right dominant rugby player, your left hand side of your visual field will be poorer. And sometimes wow. you need to be made aware of that and practice it. So you need to practice oh skills. That's so something if, I've, like, I've never even con or considered that. I've never even thought of that. I didn't even... Like that's that's fascinating. Like that is something yeah. totally new to me. Completely well, new. I think the thing is, don't think about vision as oh right, twenty twenty. Vision is yeah. integrating everything all around you, central, uh -huh. peripheral. Your vision tells your body what to do. If yep. your vision's giving the wrong message, your body's going to do something else. You're going to get injured um, because you're not seeing things coming. Your anticipation uh -huh. will get worse. Your aim yep. will get worse. It has so many connotations because your vision is about 80% of how you process this, particularly when you're playing sport. So, um, especially if the ball's moving, you know, if the target's moving, you've got to really yeah. have a fantastic visual system. Wow. So how, would, how would you pick up, um, like, what's your testing protocol? Like, how would, it, how would it become apparent to you? Like, or how would we be able to identify pupils in need? Well, I've, I've, <laughs> I've shown a few footballers and rugby players how they play. <laughs> and like videoed you know video them or save the film and and showed them later on and they're not very happy with me because mm -hmm. you can actually see how somebody plays so you actually show them on video how they play so they so footballer wise they might just be looking at the ball the whole time not being aware of peripheral so just just running with the ball and then they're always hit on the left hand side or on the right hand side because their peripheral awareness just shuts down when they're in that yep. sort of stress and yeah. um, quite often it's actually showing them the film of how they're playing but you can also um there's some very simple tests that will show them how well balanced they are so how good their posture is um how well they're using both eyes together um how they're coordinating the visual system with their movements so um you know there are some real experts out there like andy dl who works in developmental stuff and would be able to We'll go into the actual developmental side of it a bit more but basically i'm looking at what message is their visual system telling them and how are they reacting to that signal and quite often it's inaccurate or tired or they've shut things down or they've you know something's changed in their posture um uh, or their vision's telling them something else 
So it's vision. Vision is um, it is amazing though. Um, the athletes seem to think they will have automatically perfect vision as well, but they don't actually. Mm. A lot of them have poorer systems than you would imagine, and actually, your vision gets worse as you get older. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them, as they're aging, don't appreciate their vision might be changing as well. Yeah, my vision's actually got better when I've got older. I was born, <laughs> I was I was born with a, a I was born premature, so I had an operation when I was younger, and I lost my sight, like most of it anyway. So. I actually spent the first couple of years not being able to see, I don't think, until I realised I was walking into stuff. Well, prematurity is quite interesting from a development point of view mm-hmm. and also how your visual system develops. So as you say, you are, when you're premature, you are born with certain reflexes that really you should have got rid of by the time that you were born. But because you're born early, you're mm-hmm. actually born with what we call primitive reflexes. So baby reflexes that you have to gradually get rid of. But because you were born early, it's going to take you a wee bit longer to get rid of these natural survival reflexes. Yeah. And especially your vision and your, your development and your vision and your movement work together. So if your vision is a bit immature when you're born, it can actually stop you moving for a wee while. It can stop you maybe exploring things as well or coordinating as well. But premature babies catch up. They're just a little bit mm-hmm. delayed sometimes. You know, we all, they all yeah. catch but it can affect so many aspects of your actual, yeah. you know, whole system, including your vision. See, yeah. that's so fascinating about like how you work with the athletes on the, the visual side of things, because I can imagine they're just so focused on the, maybe like the psychology and like the, the physical prep and the training. Like that's just something that for me, that's totally new to me. So I, 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 I guess you must find athletes and stuff that have just never experienced that or never trained that side of things as well. Absolutely. I mean, in this country, we don't have sports vision clinics. Mm-hmm. If you're in Australia or America, though, they have sports vision clinics where they give the athletes go through sports vision training. Yeah. And we have had sports vision coaches coming over here um, to help look at like the Scotland and England rugby team. You know, occasionally they've had some training, but it's not something routinely done in this country. I think that's something that the, the, the Scotland yeah. football team could be could be benefiting. I was going to ask. <laughs> he wasn't very happy with me. I didn't see him again. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, no, maybe they need to start listening to you, Emma. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with um, so you say that you work with obviously athletes and stuff, and obviously they are more inclined to to get the help, and you can actually analyse their their performance and stuff but I guess the real challenge for for us would be looking at techniques and how we could support the pupils that we work with mm-hmm. so do you have any like practical strategies that can you up your sleeve that we could implement if we are experiencing um, a class that have got pupils with maybe visual impairments or poor visual processing to kind of help yeah. them maybe with the, that hand-eye coordination side of things or I, anything I else that you maybe experienced? I think this is just where sport is so important in school, isn't it? Because it might be the only place that child gets a chance to develop decent gross motor skills. So, you know, unfortunately, we're getting to a situation where um, a lot of kids are coming to school not fully developed. They're not developed enough to have the concentration or the stamina to be in school and learn anything. Um, So I think actually a lot of the education part of it should be there when the parent's pregnant because they need to understand that in order to get that child fully prepared and fully developed, they need to sort of make sure that child moves plenty when they're little, moves properly, crawls properly, 
tummy time, back time, um, yeah. you know, and not screen time, not car yeah. seat time, you know. Um, I, so I think the actual education side of it comes in before that. But obviously, when that child is in school, to me, child is the golden opportunity. That, that time is, is, might be the only chance that they actually get to do some activity that will help their development. And that's why it upsets me that there really isn't that much activity or PE in schools anymore. And also that, you know, a lot of parents don't have the opportunity to let their kids do after school clubs or activities and stuff. So I think it's difficult for teachers, isn't it? But I do think it, as a PE teacher, it does give you an opportunity to maybe pick up those kids that are possibly going to have more of a challenge in the classroom and maybe allow them to learn a little bit differently. But as a teacher, I don't know how you implement that. But I think um, the important thing is that activity and sport and exercise gives you a good core strength, gives you good posture in the classroom. Mm -hmm. It gives you good hand-eye coordination, which is good for copying from the board and handwriting. Um, you know, you need to learn to move efficiently for your visual system to work efficiently. Um, so parents need to know all of this from a really early age before the children even get there. And I think, um, as I say, I thought it's actually quite interesting to watch like a group of little footballers because you can actually see those ones that are running up to the ball and trying to kick it and it's not there or running past the ball mm -hmm. and it's not there. So I think when you look at them actually doing PE, it's a really good opportunity to see those kids who have poor core strength poor hand-eye coordination because these are the kids that are more likely to struggle in the classroom. Um, so do you think that's why then is it almost like they're using more energy to do these really simple tasks like copy from the board like you say and like concentrate on a task for a set period of time is that where maybe behavior problems and that could could come up or am I just am I right with saying that or absolutely I mean kids get frustrated and exhausted because they're working so hard to do something that they're maybe not mature enough to actually do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that child may not be in the right developmental stage to actually be holding a pen or copying from the board or listening properly or having enough attention to actually learn anything. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. They're trying to use exec executive functions. So parts of their brain that they actually haven't reached yet. Um, yeah. So absolutely exhausted. And as you say, behavioral problems because of it. Yeah, I think for me, um, in schools, I'm seeing a lot that, you know, time scares, resources are scarce, but I think there's a lot of pupils getting put into classes that aren't ready to learn, and they're just getting thrown into classes because there's, you know, there's, there's not enough classes for them or enough teachers there, so it's not really fair on the, on the children. Um, if, it, uh, if we have to get it right for every child, then I think that needs to be addressed. Um, they, they potentially need one more one-to-one, -one, don't they? I just hope. think it's the hardest thing because no child learns the same as the other child. They all learn differently and yet we're all expecting them to learn at the same right rate, learn in the same way, do the same thing, you know, um, process the same way, albeit at the same level and the same stage. And mm -hmm. we all know that's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I just think teachers, I just admire you. I don't think I could, I just couldn't do it. I just don't know how you do it. But I do think Some one of the things is to make sure that this the child are fit and active enough so that when they do have to sit down and concentrate that they've got rid of some physical energy. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is a lot of these kids are not physically active. So when you ask them to sit still and do something, they've got too much energy. They just can't, they can't do it. So I don't, I just think it's, I think it's a very hard job. I really do. 
Yeah, would you definitely. say maybe maybe at the start of every day we could every pupil should take part in physical activity if it was possible? Would you? I, I do. I would do absolutely, especially yeah. P one to three. Yeah. <laughs> I think most of their day should be active. I think they all their learning should be active. I don't think they should be expected to sit still. I hate the idea of P one to three being assessed, you know, and uh -huh. doing exams and stuff because they're all different at that age. I always think that that young, the most important thing is that they're happy going to school and they learn to be sociable and they learn respect and they learn to be kind yeah. and, then, and then give them a chance within those three years to get to what they want to do. Do they want to start reading? Do they want to start doing this? Are they not ready for it? You know, mm -hmm. are they, you know, it, it's, it's a huge thing though, isn't it? It's familial, it's cultural, it's, it, there's so many aspects to it. It's nutritional. But I think, I think it's, school is such a huge part of a childhood that it is yeah, really definitely. a place where you could do the most, do the best for that child. But mm -hmm. mm. yeah, it's a it's a work in progress, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know how. I just I see things changing though. I definitely see things changing from an educational point of view. I think mm -hmm. you know attitudes of teachers and stuff. And yeah, um, yeah, I think it's good that there's a lot of like like things like this, and there's a lot of, like a, a lot of teachers on Twitter and stuff like willing to help and. There is a lot more out there now to go and to learn about things like, well, like I hadn't heard the behavioural optometry before and like the better movers and thinkers, speech and language therapy and how we can get like little practical strategies that we can, that's not going to take up because there's obviously there's so many things to consider when um, teaching a class, like you said, all the different needs, all the processing yeah. abilities and everything. Like yeah. even if we can have just like a couple of wee tools in there that you could make it that wee bit better for the pupils it's it's always a bonus isn't it yeah, always trying I, to add to the toolbox mm -hmm. i think i think just identifying those kids that need handouts you know rather than copying from the board yeah, yeah. Um, i think um identifying those kids who do work a bit slower you know who aren't going to work as fast and um identifying those kids who would be horrified if you asked them to read out loud Mm -hmm. You know, don't make them do stuff that would mortify them and rock their confidence. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a lot of strategies, isn't there, within the classroom? Um, and even just putting the kids in the right place in the classroom. So yeah. you know, they, they might be better to one side of the classroom. They might be better in the centre. It depends yeah. on their laterality. It depends whether they're good at listening or not listening. It depends what their eyesight's like. But I mean, you open a can of worms when you say things like that, don't you? Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know, you've got me thinking over my seating plans here. I'm going to go back and redraft them. It'd be horrible. Just, <laughs> it'd be horrible. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? We used to keep the, all the kids in the same seats now. Like, you can't yeah. move them about. We used to submit our seating plans to the head teacher. So if there was a case of coronavirus, you could test and trace it quite easily to see who they're sitting next to. Yeah. So um, nah, that's a that's been a task this week to get that done. Um, yeah. But Lois was saying the other day about that run. He was spot on when he was talking about the you've got thirty kids in your class, but it's not just one lesson you're teaching. It's almost like thirty different lessons, like thirty different individual lessons. But I mean, it's such a complex task. And there's so many different barriers there that you have to try and I know. tackle. I know, and it's it's impossible, really. But I think I think it's. I think it's just identifying, as you say, the odd bits that you could put in there. And when when I do an assessment, I generally write a neat report that can be forwarded to the school mm. to, and giving strategies in school or, um, you know, 
a lot of stuff all the kids can do like organizational things they like color coding their folders to the highlighter that they use in the classroom if they don't like reading they don't like visual processing use a highlighter to break down the reading so just highlight keywords and then make yep. a memory map or bullet points from those keywords and then use that highlighter to have the same color folder and then it's all within your visual memory the same color um so it's it's a lot of its organizational skills as well as visual skills mm -hmm. um but i think a lot of kids who aren't readers and struggle with the visual processing side the trick is to chunk the information to make it smaller to digest because if you look at a page of words most of those words are not important they're fillers yeah so it's really just trying to not let them be overwhelmed and just give them those strategies um memory maps are fantastic for some kids they can be as graphic as you like um i think also memory maps. Take a note um, of that. so highlighters are good memory maps are good um notelets are good you know sticking little bits of information on notelets and stick them on the wall and stand in front of the wall yep. you know I, I always say to people don't feel like you have to sit down to revise or do your homework stand up you've got loads mm. of energy which is dead easy for me to say isn't it to a classroom <laughs> yeah if yeah. you've got loads of energy you stand up and do some work that's not going to work but you know i think uh if you you actually learn better when you move yeah. so mm -hmm. you're better sometimes um like putting the notelets around the room and walking around the room as you re look at the notelets or standing in front of the memory map on the wall and, and reading it out loud and again audio and visual work together so always audio and visual together so when you're at home read out your notes yeah it's, it's reinforcing the visual so they reinforce each other uh -huh. so there's, there's lots of things you know um recording lessons so you can play them back is quite handy for some kids mm -hmm. so there's there's lots of visual tactics you know if you if you do look at it there are lots of ways yeah that was like a kind of thing that i was experimenting with when we went into lockdown using the microsoft teams if i was given one of my classes a, a powerpoint if we were covering something actually like recording me speaking over the top of it as well just to add that other element Absolutely. Trying to, trying to I think it's easier to explain something speaking it rather than writing it down. I don't know why. It just seems like yeah. they can hear your voice. They can read it, and yeah. I don't know. It just seems like a bit easier to. It's it's really important. They they definitely both work together. They really mm. do. Right. So can I going back onto the thing about uh, having perfect vision, but you can still have poor visual processing. Yeah. Is this kind of why so many children don't achieve their kind of potential in school and don't enjoy sport? Could you yeah. talk to us a little bit more about that? So, so basically, hopefully you're born with the hardware. You know, if we're lucky enough, we're born with two eyes, two optic nerves, a visual cortex, you know, so we're born with the actual tools, if you like. Um, but your vision has to develop like the rest of your body. So unless you move as a baby, your vision will not develop as well as it could do. Um, so if you like, you have to develop the software after you've got the hardware. And the only way to do that is, is basically to be able to um, have a, you really ideally wanted to be able to um, have a really healthy, good gross motor system when you're a baby. So that means that um, you have, you know, as, as I was saying before, that you go through all of the developmental stages, you roll, you lie on your tummy. Lying on your tummy is really important because it gives your 
a body a really good hard midline so good core strength so you're able to mm -hmm. prop yourself up on your hands and your elbows move your head so you end up with a really good head movement which means that your hand-eye coordination is going to be really good as you get older a lot of mm -hmm. kiddies are not put on their tummies so do not develop good hand-eye coordination um also if you uh, if you're on um if you don't roll for example your vestibular system doesn't develop as well so you might have vestibular problems which is your balance mm -hmm. as you get older and then crawling is a massive one you really have to ideally learn to crawl properly because that gives you your body map so that tells you where you are in space and it allows mm -hmm. your vision to develop as well so if something's over there you think right what do i have to do to get over there and that helps your coordination and your posture and your strength and literally you work out how how fast or how slow you have to get there then you're crawling as your precursor to walking so you really want to the the whole developmental part of crawling is that you're starting to use both sides of your body which means you're starting to use both sides of your visual system. So you're starting to become more binocular. Mm -hmm. um, so you, mm -hmm. you, your whole gross motor is very finely tuned to your fine motor skills and they, your vision and your movement develop together. So it, when you're a baby, obviously you start as a bit of a bum shuffler or mm -hmm. you start as a bit of a commando. And then ideally yeah. what you should start to do is you bring up your, your one, well, I think Andy's maybe talked to you about this already, but you bring up your right-hand side and then your left hand side and then you start to alternate so you start to do right and left yeah. and that you in your brain you are creating a map of your body and where you are in space and also developing your binocular vision and your depth perception so that is such an important part of development but you will find that some children with tracking and coordination problems didn't crawl so see what yeah, regards just to you Oh, Lewis, just remember, this is for toddlers, not for you to be crawling about after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> crawling down to get your dinner. Sam. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> no, it, my, has, it has um... been done. It has been done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it? yeah, it's not too late. You can start crawling. <laughs> so, yeah. that, so I'm dead so serious. A, that can be really? an intervention for people. That Can it? Any ah. age. So can, oh, yeah. but that, I was going to ask you there then about balance. So... I don't know if it's a myth or not, but I used to to work in to work in a gym, and one of the, my my ex colleagues just told me that after a certain age you can't develop your balance anymore. Is that true, or is that a lot of nonsense? I Who said that? Was that Clark? No, no, no. <laughs> I think what they say is um, that I think vestibular is one of the systems that you're not born with. You're not born with a fully um, developed vestibular system. Is that right? Or is, hang on, no, hang on, that's completely wrong. You're born with a completely well-developed vestibular system, but there's no vestibular cortex. So there's no area of your brain that is fully vestibular, which is your balance. Mm -hmm. Your vestibular okay. system works off lots of other systems. So it works off your visual system. It works right, off proper feedback. So I think what that probably means to say is you can't really develop it because there's no particular wiring particularly for vestibular but there yeah. is you can help your vestibular with your ocular eye movements with your coordination with your posture with yeah, your yeah. balance so i don't know I, I think you'd probably have to ask a vestibular expert about that but i know that you, there isn't one specific part of your brain for yeah, it yeah. so I, I guess maybe just like building up certain muscles so like if you're looking to, to like a gymnast 
looking to to handstand. Obviously, they'd be looking to strengthen their upper body and their core, things like that. That would obviously, I suppose, would help towards it. Yeah, uh, that's so interesting. Is, I think so. I think you try and develop their visual system. Yeah. And you try and develop their core to help them with the vestibular. Because it's got mm. nothing to do with hearing, it's to just do with balance. And I also think you could probably do some sports vision training with that. So allowing you to understand where you are in space, because that's really what your vestibular system does as well. It tells mm. you where things are in proportion to you. So you could probably do some work on training that up. Mm -hmm. So you have like, have you got like particular drills or practices you would do with the athletes to develop that? For example, um, like the like the football player that you were talking about kept getting injured. Is that would that just be a correction of his posture and just tell them to be more aware, or do you have specific like practices you could do to? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, there's some fabulous technologies out there that I've mm -hmm. obviously never been able to afford. But you're basically you can see them online. They are these systems where you stand on a wobble board and you are tapping at the same time. So you've uh -huh. got these big LED screens uh, right, I've, I've and seen, so like vivid vision and people like that do them. And they are literally, um, you're, you're on your balance, but you're hand eye at the same time. Now you can do that with other things. It doesn't have to be technology, mm -hmm. but what you're trying to do is a multi-sensory activity yeah. basically yeah. where you've got to think about everything. So you're thinking about gravity, vestibular, visual, hearing, mm -hmm. so you're literally loading it. So it's a really fully loaded program. So if you did a child, for example, you wouldn't load it as much as that. You just put them on the wobble board and ask them to try and balance and maybe yeah. just do the odd little tap. But as mm -hmm. an athlete, you're expecting them to be able to do absolutely loads altogether. Mm -hmm. So you just load it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it does depend on the sport very much. Very much. Yeah, that doing. I've seen that. I follow a, a professional wakeboarder on Instagram and he always posts videos of his training and he's, it does all this this kind of balance stuff and he's got one of those LED boards and it just like flashes and he's got to tap it and bend down and get into awkward positions whilst trying to, it's like a board and it's on like a yeah. foam yeah. roller type yeah. thing. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool to see. But I suppose you could do that with, um, you could put like different coloured post-it notes on the wall. Absolutely. And you yeah. could just, the teacher could call out the colour and then they could just, there's yeah, a, or alternative. Yeah, or just a <laughs> A ball hanging on a string in front of you or two balls hanging on a string. Um, you can either, if you're hockey, you can tap it with a hockey stick uh -huh. or you can just pat it with your hand. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, the notelets thing's a great thing for learning. Uh -huh. um, do, but yeah, you could, you could, you could, you know, there's lots of things you could do, definitely. Thousands get, of pounds. <laughs> yeah, just get creative with it. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So... Uh, Emma, with us trying to kind of get our uh, young people to access optimal learning, um, could you maybe share an example of maybe you a time you've worked with an athlete or a child, and you know how would you evaluate their progress? How do you know if they're improving or not? Do you have any evaluative approaches that you take? Yeah, so as as a behavioural optometrist, whether it's a sports vision assessment or a, what we call a school vision assessment, uh, we have we are directed with a twenty one point test. So we have a battery of tests that we need to perform right. and the tests obviously look at vision at distance and near. They look at what the prescription is at distance and near. So you would check. Sometimes you can find that the distance prescription is very different to what they need at near. So you have lots of issues with focusing power, which is your accommodation. So we're checking to see how quick and how flexible your focusing power is. 
we're looking at convergence. So how quickly can you look at an object at whatever distance? You know, how efficient are you? How quick are you? How accurate are you? We're looking at tracking. So we would look at how well you just track a small object um, quite slowly, but then we might bring in two objects and see how quickly you can fixate. So there's, there's lots of different activities or investigations that we do, and we just modify them for the age or the level or the potential of the person. So, you know, in athletes, I would be expecting an awful lot more flexibility in their system and speed of focusing and, and accuracy in their tracking than I would expect of an eight-year-old child. I would never expect mm -hmm. them to be the same level. In fact, yeah. I wouldn't want them to be. If I saw an eight-year-old child with the visual system and athlete, I'd be worried. I think yeah. they'd maybe skipped a huge developmental stage and suddenly got to amazing fine motor skill far too early, which meant they probably wouldn't be riding a bike. They probably have no balance or anything. And you do get kids like that. You do get kids that are really, really, really clever and have fantastic visual memories and almost photographic and are doing amazingly well at remembering things. But their social skills and their core skills and their gross military skills are really poor. Why does that happen? Um, lack of um, lack of a chance to develop, and and sometimes you will get children with poor vision, and um, like who've ha been short sighted from an early age and didn't really move much, or you can get children who have poor vision but it wasn't picked up, so they didn't move much as a child. But you will get um, some very dominant sided people so if you are very right 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 so right eye right ear right foot um left brain those sort of people are generally really academic um but totally inflexible like mm -hmm. do not like change has to, everything has to be routine everything's pretty black and white and these people generally have quite a small visual field so mm -hmm. they've almost closed it in to the point where they're just using their high skills like attention um some some of these people have photographic memories you know like your high functioning autistic kids that can literally look at a photograph and draw it afterwards so you yeah. have a lot of your visual system and your visual processing is actually like how are you integrating your visual field and how is your body developed so if you imagine you're too far one side your visual field's going to be constricted so your ability to think about the whole picture will be smaller so you mm -hmm. will not be feeding off your visual system as a whole you'll be closed in a bit cut in but then you have these other kids who are the opposite end in that they have no visual attention and they're all over the place like they touch everything they're moving all the time they can't concentrate they can't learn anything um you know they just literally just want to whirl around climb things spin mm -hmm. so there's it's really how integrated your system is because you sh what we should be able to do is tune everything in all at the same time we should be able to tune in our vision our audio our taste our smell but you mm. will find adults and children who just can't integrate all of those things and just shut things down so i think, I think uh, from what you're saying is is it's really important that we have a, 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 a kind of good curriculum based on movement and developing that physical literacy of balancing you know core bodies uh, core strength and the kind of gross and fine motor skill development that's really important then isn't it Absolutely. Your core, your core is so important to your posture, but also to your ability to turn quickly, to move quickly, um, to, you know, if you have not got a decent core, then when you're, hand, when you're writing, you'll be leaning on the desk, 
um, you know, you might not develop good hand skills, like good grip. Um, you know, in your chair, you'll be sitting on one leg or Y sitting or W sitting as they call it, because yep. you just don't have the core balance. I'm so conscious so, of my posture right now. <laughs> I know. I was just looking how Ralph Joel did I am. I'm like this. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think the biggest aim, really, what, what we're a little bit in balance with just now is the importance of physical activity, especially in primary school. You know, and also into, into secondary school for reasons like mental health and, you know, just feeling good about yourself and esteem. You know, I think if you've got healthy kids, you become a healthy adult. It's, it's fact, really. If you're used to when you've got spare time going to do some physical activity rather than going on your Xbox or watching yeah. TV, then mm -hmm. you generally, you know, it's such a good lesson for little ones to learn, apart from anything else. I just think it has huge connotations for so many aspects of your life if you're just not a fit child. Um, I think it's a real worry for parents, actually, at the minute, from speaking to parents in, in my school, that... You know, they're all playing Fortnite on, on their Xbox. They're all playing this, these computer games straight after school. And they're not having that social emotional development of playing outside or they're not even taking part in PE in school. Yeah. So you know, that's a, a real worry for parents that I've been speaking to as well, you know, and how they can get them out of that rut. Yeah. Do, you ever have any, do you ever have any kids, sorry, about, do you ever have any kids who don't really show any issues in primary school, but then it kind of flags up 11 in their teenage years? Yeah. Because so you work in secondary schools. Yeah, so I think that happens a lot. I think, you know, that I think that they have some kids are, you know, clever enough to sort of hide the fact that they're not a good reader. So, you know, you can actually sound amazing as a reader. You can read out loud and be fluent and sound like full of expression, wonderful, but not remember a thing you've just read out loud. So there are there are ways that kids sort of get around it and then they suddenly end up in secondary school with loads of information and think, oh, hang on a second, I can't do this. Um, so I think obviously you go into secondary school, you suddenly get a huge more amount of information. The font gender generally gets smaller. You generally have to copy from the board more. So, you know, a lot of stuff that might have been hidden in primary school suddenly comes out a lot more that you do actually do have a visual processing problem in secondary school. And that is not unusual at all. Um, in fact, some children, when they're reading books in the primary school, is they memorise the words under the picture, and the parents mm -hmm. think that they're reading it beautifully, but actually they've just memorised the words. So it, it just shows you that I know teachers use um, the sound of how you read out loud to tell whether you're a good reader or not, but unfortunately, you can read beautifully out loud but have a terrible visual memory and not be taking it in at all. You've just learnt that skill, and the yeah. same goes for. So you have a four-year-old who reads Harry Potter. Doesn't mean to say they're reading it properly. They literally could have just learned to scan really young. And yeah. so the parents think they're amazing. Then they suddenly go into secondary school and they find out that they haven't actually been reading properly at all and they've got a terrible visual memory. So, yeah. Bad, bad habits. Just a, lo a love of reading. But reading is a real skill. There's two ways to read. There's reading for pleasure that no one's going to ask you the questions. And then there's reading to learn it. And they're very different speeds. And that's why highlighters are so good and that it slows you down and makes you read the words properly and you realise when you've missed a line. Yep. So I, you even, know, I feel like I, I really struggle with that. I see reading something and trying, like sometimes I can, I can read a page of something and then just not even know what, like not even understand or remember what it was about. And then I just get lost and I'm like, I need to stop. But I feel like underlining it or highlighting it kind of 
just takes me through it that wee bit slower. Sometimes I feel like I need to reread a sentence like a few times. Yeah. So it's so I, I, I guess to, yeah. So I guess to some degree, like I'm not saying everybody, but obviously everyone's at different levels. But yeah. obviously we have some form of um, issue with that, or I don't know if that's if that's right in saying that is. It, it, I think it's a very common thing. Yeah, I mean, some some children read incredibly slow. And in, in the past, it's been seen as a negative, but actually that child might be remembering every single word that they're reading. Yeah, yeah. I think we just have to realise that everybody's different and actually mm -hmm. visual memory is more important than actually how you're reading it out loud. Um, and it's actually teaching the skill of reading. And I think, unfortunately, there is less kids reading books, which means they're not reading this properly so that they're not then typing things properly so their vocabulary is poorer, their com communication is poorer, their expression is poorer, their creative writing is poorer, their visualisation is poorer. So mm -hmm. obviously when you read a book, you're visualising the story, which means you're generally better at creative writing. If you're not really reading anything, your vocabulary is less because you're not reinforcing the words that you read, but also your visualisation is poorer because you're not into imagining things. So one of the great ways of say learning spelling or learning information is notelets but sometimes you'll say to some kids okay so think of an elephant tell me what an elephant looks like and they'll just be like hmm, um do you know what i mean they can't even visualize that mm. picture so i think that's coming across a lot more as time's going by is that yeah. the whole visual visualization technique is so important in life because you know mm. you need to be able to visualize stuff to put them down into words and I, I see that a lot more. I'm seeing a lot more dysgraphia, definitely. Mm -hmm. So, so with all the issues um, of poor visual processing, then Emma, kind of putting you on the spot here. Just lastly, if you were a teacher or a, a school leader, you know, how would you tackle these barriers or address the challenges that we find ourselves in? Uh, I I think being a teacher is incredibly hard. Um, I think. It, it must be awful to sometimes have a class where you think every single one of these children needs extra help and I can't give it or, you know, I, I think the thing about visual, like poor visual processing is, is it can come in lots of different ways and forms and it can sometimes not appear, as you say, until later on. Um, but I think, I do think early intervention is a really important thing. We've discussed yep. activity and movement is really important. I think um, maybe more active learning in classrooms rather than sitting still, even if they're just standing up behind the desk and just doing more activities rather than just yeah. sitting and passively learning and yep. copying from the board and things. Um, and I think it's just the activity part of it. I think it doesn't matter what level or potential that student's at is find something that makes them active and exercises them so even if they're in a wheelchair for example still try and get them into you know wheelchair rugby or wheelchair basketball or even if they've got cerebral palsy or and are quite severely learning support there's no reason why there isn't something that they can do because we all know that activity and movement promotes obviously development and learning but it also promotes mental health health you know issues and um, help and stuff it gives you some esteem and helps your core and just 
uses different parts of your brain that you maybe wouldn't ordinarily use. So like dancing uses different parts of your brain. Music uses different parts of your brain. PE and physical activity uses different parts of your brain. It's just trying to stimulate as many of your senses all at once rather than passively just stimulating one at the each time. Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, I think all teachers know that no child's the same. And I, I think the other thing to think about is, um, understanding how a child processes processes in the way that if you're very right dominant or you're very left dominant you will think in a completely different way so for example most of the population are right 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 so they generally manage pretty well in a classroom situation but you will get about 15 percent of the population who are what we call cross dominant and cross dominant adults and kids have maybe a right right eye dominant left-handed right-footed, left ear, so they cross over all the time. And these sort of children actually find it quite tricky in school because it takes them longer to work out how to process a problem. But actually, as they get older, they're actually very good spatially and very good at problem solving. So some children, because of the way they process, appear to struggle a lot more earlier on, but actually Mm -hmm. later on they manage really well. And then you've got your lefties and the lefties just think completely differently to everybody else. There's no way they could learn. <laughs> There's no way that you can learn the same way as everybody else. I thought you had a bit of a mental thought process, Clark, but that's, that explains yeah. a lot. But I think, it I does, think it's true. It if, you, if you Google it, um, if you yeah. Google it, she says that's dead academic, isn't it? But <laughs> if, you, if you do look into it, you know, the way you as a lefty process is completely different to the way a righty processes. Yeah. And that should actually come into the classroom teaching a little bit. I would love it if, you know, in P1, they assessed you from a sports point of view or an exercise point of view and said, right, well, this child's a lefty, mm-hmm. you know, totally. Or so therefore in the classroom situation, this is how this child's probably going to process it. Therefore, it'd be really helpful to know that as a teacher. Yeah. And I also really think... Good. Yeah. I think as well, looking at um, children and how they even just go and kick a football or catch or something in in the early years will help you think, well, maybe that child might struggle a little bit more in the classroom situation because their coordination is really poor, their core is really poor. When they run, they just obviously run with a really strange gait or something, yeah. you know, or they're not happy. They're not happy with balls. They don't like things flying around them. And I think that's why... P and sport and activity any activity is so important from an early stage in that it helps you to identify strengths and weaknesses a wee bit um and i think the other thing to bear in mind is a normal eye test unfortunately doesn't always pick these things up so you know in a normal eye examination we only look at how well they see over there we do not look to see how well they see close up and you will find children who have a very different prescription here than they do over there and they're not picked up till much later on unfortunately so it's it's um i just think yeah i just think the the movement and learning and visual development is just maybe underlooked a little bit it seems like it and it's just fascinating to see how much your vision can have an impact on so many different things your visual processing sorry like it's absolutely fascinating that's all totally new stuff to me so isn't that funny though that, isn't it funny that the connection's not been made yeah you know what i mean it's not yeah. just you so many people do not make uh-huh. the connection between vision and learning uh-huh. no, that was yeah, really interesting um, really really interesting 
Some good so, details there. Emma, at the end of every one of our podcasts, it's just a, a wee kind of fun thing that we do. We have a quick fire round of three. So it's just three quick questions um, that are a wee bit kind of random and off topic. So number one, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere in the world or in your hometown, what would it say on it? I found this really difficult because I didn't know whether to be like uh, dead serious or a bit academic or like really silly. We've had a mix, uh, so... Anything's fine. I thought um, you don't want anything too busy, do you? Because you don't want people crashing. Uh-huh. So uh, it has to be quite simple, doesn't it? Yeah, that's good. So yeah. I was going to put, um, have you been to Barnard Castle? Right, okay. Yeah. Where, where is that? Because I've not. <laughs> that's the one that Dominic Cummings got oh, done. Because he, he oh. went to test his eyesight. Ah, oh, for right, 30 miles, right. 40 mile drive, was it? To test his eyesight. <laughs> So it was either that or I was going to put be kind on it because I think yeah. be kind is nice. Yeah, I think it's, we a good, it's a good value to teach your kids in school from an early age, as you said. That's the most were. important thing, I think. First three years, be kind, be nice. Yeah, absolutely. Look absolutely. After your friends. I think we can fit both of those statements on the billboard, no so we'll, we'll go with them. Brilliant. <laughs> okay. So, can it's an extra large billboard for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what books or book has had the greatest influence on your life? When I was younger, I was one of those kids that read everything, literally. Mm-hmm. I would read absolutely everything. Um, and everyone thought it was amazing. But actually, growing up, I realised I didn't read properly at all. So I used to scan books. So I used to be like prolific. I would read a book in a day. And everyone mm-hmm. thought that was really amazing. And then I found out probably at university that I didn't read properly. But one of the books I absolutely loved and... I think it was because it's full of short stories. Have uh-huh. you seen this one? Oh, brilliant. It's like a little history of the world. I've not seen that. It's, um, it's basically, it's actually a translation. So he was, he's a German, is a German who translated it and it, it's all short stories of the world. So the, how the world started all the way from zero, all the way to the war, world wars and stuff. And it's oh. just short, each chapter. And I used to love reading and I realise now it's because they were short chapters. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But it's a really beautiful book and it's, um, it's lovely to read to your kids as well. It's really lovely because it's short stories, but they're all true. Ah. So that's a lovely book. And then the reason I got really interested in anthropology and evolution and stuff is this book here. Aquatic Ape. Yeah. So is that quite similar to, have you heard of a book called Sapiens? Yes. Right, I, I, that's one a I, lot older though. Right, okay. This is a lot older, but it's basically, it's the same woman who wrote The Descent of Woman, and it's not a feminist book, I promise. Yeah. It's, it's actually just telling you that actually we probably evolved from the water. Oh. And it's, uh, it basically gives you the, the, her theory of with the fact we actually evolved from the water. Um, well, lots, interesting. lots of different reasons, like long hair, and, and, also, and it might explain things i won't mention them online but it has other things in it that mm-hmm. might explain mm-hmm. why certain men have things that you can't really explain why they've got them yeah <laughs> so it's all to do with like the kind of anatomy and how we're kind of made up then i take it yeah and it's also where our, where our fat distribution is on our bodies and stuff mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. it's a really interesting book so they're the two that i think i remember most i quite like the a little history of the world that sounds like quite an interesting read actually it's, it's lovely. It's, and it's so beautifully, you know how some books when they're translated lose it a little bit? 
Mm-hmm. It's nice, yeah. lovely. It's really nice. Really good. Things are awareness to the history, I suppose, and what's happened and what's gone by. So, no, yeah. it's one I'll definitely try and get my hands on. I know it does. It actually does. I still read it. I still can you not see how battered it is? It's just wrecked. I still actually read it every now and again because it's lovely. Do you mean you highlight it? No, I haven't highlighted <laughs> <laughs> what is it. It's okay. It's, you, it's short stories, so it's dead easy. It's one you don't need to read like, back to front. Yeah. You could kind of, or page to page, sorry, you could read it, dip in and out at different bits. Oh, you won't need yeah. to highlight for that one, Lewis. Yeah, that's fine. Good. <laughs> music, music to my ears. Right, Emma, final question on the quick fire round then. What advice would you give to a teacher working with one or a number of children with poor visual processing skills to help them achieve their full potential in school? Um, I think be aware that a visual processing skill might not look like a visual problem. Mm-hmm. So they might have amazing eyesight, but not process very well visually. And to maybe look out for other cues that might indicate their vision is a problem. So holding things close, funny posture, funny head tilts, um, coordination problems, um, you know, even just watching them out of the staff room window and watching them in the playground, watching how they they move, um, not just how they are in the classroom, if you get chance, you know, and I think it's, vision has such an impact on so many parts of your actual movement and your skills and your learning much more than we probably realize, but they might not be that obvious. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also be aware that reading speed isn't necessarily an indicator of a good reader. What's more important is visual memory and actually remembering what you read is one of the biggest skills that you can possibly have because it makes you better at learning. So, just because you get straight A's in your exams doesn't mean that you're as clever as the person who gets straight mm. C's. It's just you've managed mm. for that exam to cram yeah. and do really well. So I think, I think we have to shift slightly on how much emphasis we put on grades and, and final mm. year exams. I do. I think it, some, for some kids, that's just the hardest thing. And for other kids, it's the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, just, we just say give them a maybe like a model answer to read in PE, like a model answer of a performance, and then get them to answer questions on it straight away I, to test whether they've visually taken in. I think, um, especially with maths, I think you could get them running around a gym and doing maths. You know, you could say, right, who thinks this is the answer? Or you could say, right, um, you know, if, I think any subject could be done in an active way. Yeah. I, I don't think it all has to be passive and sitting still. I think some some subjects like trigonometry or something you know that would be really good fun outside that would be really good fun um doing in an active way it doesn't have to yeah. be sitting so i do think with, if you look at the scandinavian schools they teach very differently yeah. to the way that we do and they don't yeah. push kids to read and write before the age of eight they let you know they let them get on with just life and outdoor mm. living and outdoor activity so i think i do see a shift in the uk but mm. i do definitely look towards Finland for example and see how they do their education system compared to how we do and feel that it would be quite nice to, to you know think about things a little bit more. Yeah. So, yeah I think I would like to see more classes outside of Moscow. I don't see many apart from PE really. No and, and some kids are getting to the point that they don't even want to go outside you know as you say they they, they just don't want to. It's so sad. It is. 
is but you, you know especially with covid those kids that didn't want to go outside certainly don't want to go outside now mm -hmm. um so I, I think i think we are actually outdoor outdoor beings we shouldn't be inside all the time but mm -hmm. i think Definitely. we're losing a lot of our senses and our intuitiveness and mm -hmm. our um um, our sort of health as well, definitely, obviously mental and physical, because we're just not, so yeah, it's a minefield, isn't it? It's a kind of worms, really. I know, and I think it's just taking it back to basics, just like eating well, just being outside and moving and just like, and just getting some sunshine, you know, it's just like, that's all, all you need. I think we've, as we've like, through the generations and the years, we've just um, overcomplicated it a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. But... Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of takes it away from what you were saying there. So I think that's um, definitely something to be looked at. But. We're definitely seeing more developmental delays that are causing visual problems, that's for sure. Absolutely. So. Um, right, well, thanks very much for uh, coming on to share your experience with us today. That was definitely something new for me and I've taken so much from that. It was really, really fascinating to hear how much your vision can impact on all these different areas of your learning and and your sport and stuff like that as well. So we really, really appreciate your time and we hope this helps the current teachers across the country and the next generation, the students coming through. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for asking yes. me. Thanks for coming on, Emma. That was something different. We've not really had anything like that on the show, so that definitely was unique. So thanks very much for that. As with every week, we have our key takeaway messages um, from the hosts. So we'll start with you, Clark. What was yours? from today's episode with Emma. It was a very, a very interesting one. What was your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I thought Emma's episode uh, was definitely unique in terms of the angle that we took. Uh, we've never really had anybody on in terms of behavioural optometry or anything close to that. Um, so, no, it was good to, to listen to Emma tonight. And uh, I suppose the whole, the whole mission of a wee bit of everything is so people with listening can take strategies away and implement it the next day in their classes. So I'll kind of take that approach. My, my, my key takeaway message and what I'll take into my National 5 higher class this week, and so hopefully we can raise attainment in the class, would be the strategies she spoke about, about highlighting and the importance of highlighting key, key words or phrases when they're completing their portfolio or when they're completing uh, an exam uh, question in revision for an exam so that, that just slows down the alert that slows down um how quickly they're reading the, the question or the how to set up a cre test for example it might be something like that so they can just highlight the, the steps that they would they would take yeah um so it slows them down and you can kind of visually process it and lastly the memory maps i think i'll, I'll use that in my, my national fives you know get them to write out to be, for example, describing a test and just get them to write key, key words or phrases that, that they would need to input into the answer to make sure they get four out of four. Mm -hmm. Or um, I may even be looking at, you know, how would they evaluate a performance and just writing key, key buzzwords that they would need to, to put in that. You could do it looking at those like acronyms, like the, the FACI one or where they describe it's like the, the what, where, when, how type thing. Mm -hmm. You could do it like that style to help them. Yeah. Yep, I think it's just, use, it's just using these strategies, like these active learning strategies that are going to make sure that everyone's needs are being met, even pupils with poor visual processing. And um, she also spoke about the note, the notepad one as well, um, the post-it note one, sorry, mm -hmm. where you could have them, you know, putting post-it notes up in the corners of the classrooms 
physical, mental, emotional, and social, and then moving around and just seeing different group, different groups works. I know that's different just now. Moving about the classes, they're trying to avoid that, but you know it's a good principle and a good strategy that we can definitely implement mm-hmm. going forward. So, um, so hopefully, I've sort of gave a brief summary there of my key takeaway message, and uh, hopefully, others can help. Can sorry, can uh, learn from that one as well. What was, what was kind of ringing through there for you, there, man, there, Mister Cleland? I think everything that you said, just to kind of go with yours as well. I think that was absolutely fantastic. You summarised that nicely, and it's practical strategies that you can take away and and implement, and that's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? Because it's all right having the knowledge, but what knowing what to do with the knowledge, and that's the that's where the kind of the problems come. So it's good to have those practical strategies. But the main thing that I thought was quite um, that was highlighted to me anyway was with regards to for the how much energy it can take some pupils to carry out routine simple tasks such as sitting on a chair and writing and copying from a board. And if they've got poor visual processing or perhaps poor posture, then they're going to find these tasks so, so difficult. It's going to take so much energy. They're, then there's going to have a knock-on effect on their focus and ultimately their learning. So um, I thought that was just fascinating and how each pupil's obviously at a different developmental stage and you get some pupils that find that so simple and others that, that really struggle with it. So again, it just highlights the importance that um, teaching PE can have on simple things like that in class. And it's going to have a knock-on impact on going to English, maths, and subjects where they, they need to sit down for extended periods of time. And when they kind of go up to school, where they're going to be, it's going to be a lot more independent learning. They're going to be reading and um, writing and taking notes, etc. So I think PE has got a, a crucial role to play in developing things like their coordination, their core strength, because like Emma says, this has a knock-on impact on on their ability to do simple tasks in class with minimal effort. And then that'll have an awkward impact on their um, ability to concentrate, which is very interesting. You know, if you look at the benchmarks, you know, we've got coordination, we've got cross and fine motor skills, and we've got um, focus of attention, cue recognition. These are all the things, oh, sorry, core stability. So that's the five things I've said there. Mm-hmm. That's your job to develop them, and if we can develop them at an early age, that's going to impact on their learning and how they sit in class and concentration. Yeah. So you could actually just make huge. it completely explicit to the because that might switch a flick, uh, flick a switch, switch a flick. <laughs> that might flick a switch in their head if you actually make it explicit. This is why I'm struggling to concentrate. Maybe I do. Do you know what I mean? It's actually educating them yeah. about that. Like that could help them essentially, or mm-hmm. it could help. It could help one person, which is. Obviously a bonus. That's a, yeah, that's uh, it. Positive. So it's, it's also about raising, raising awareness as well, whether teachers like English and math and science, like they need to know this as well so they can maybe take the learning outside or make it active for get them moving, get them standing up rather than just sitting down. Yeah. So it's everyone's role. It's not just PE. If it's just our job, it won't, I don't think it'll be successful. We need a whole collective approach. Yeah. So tomorrow I'm going in and proposing standing desks for every pupil S1 to S6. <laughs> well, tomorrow I'm going in and taking the mountain climber workout that you use and doing it every single morning. <laughs> I'm going in and getting them to plank for half an hour. Feet up the desk, get the mountain climbers gone. <laughs> no, but I, I think it does just highlight the importance of um, physical, physical education and um, improving those basic things that you should be developing through movement at a young age that some um, people's kind of 
don't really get the chance to do that or they haven't experienced it. So um, I guess it's just identifying that and doing our bit to try and help it as best we can with the short space of time that we have with them. Definitely. So, as always, if you could, if you see it on Instagram at a wee bit of everything podcast, or you see the pair of us on Twitter at Burrow underscore Mister or Cleland Lewis ninety four, we would appreciate it if you could give us a share or retweet because, as you know, this helps us get the podcast out there so others can listen as well. We hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did, and until next time, have a superb week. See you later.